0: Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. There are some people who are so multidimensional in their nature, character, and attributes that that one-word descriptors are not enough. Uh, for me, I think about my dad. I mean, he's my dad, but he's he's more than that to me. I mean, he's actually one of my best friends. Uh, he's a business partner. He's a coworker. Uh, he's one of my most trusted advisors. To, to look at my dad or to view my dad through the lens of just any one of those, uh, even father would be to misrepresent or even miscalculate really the impact that he has on my life and and what he means to me. And I'm sure you have people like this in your life, people that you know so well, uh, that mean so much to you, that they have all these different um, uh, word descriptors that you would describe that relationship. Well, this is hyper true of God. So God in, in the scriptures has given us all these different metaphors to communicate Uh, what he's like and and, and this relationship that he has. So he is a father who's gathering a family. He is a a king who's uh, gathering a kingdom. He's the cornerstone from which the whole building is built. He's the head and we are his body. He is the shepherd and we are his flock, but that's not all he is. He's also a husband and we, the church, are his bride. There's something about this metaphor that demonstrates the relationship that we have and and who God is that the others don't. And today we are going to look at this metaphor, the church as a bribe, in this series we're calling Assembled. It's coming to an end. And the big point is is to look at all these biblical metaphors, New Testament metaphors uh, that describe really what the church is like and to gain vision for what it means to be together, to be assembled. And... um, Our hope is that through this series that you would recapture vision about men being together. And in fact, I just go ahead and say that if you've not found yet, if you haven't found a a group yet, uh, there's still time. They don't start uh, for another week the week of September the 26th. And uh, so I hope that you get in a group. And if you're still not convinced, I just want you to know that there's some really great content that you're going to be able to wrestle with in these groups. Uh, On that Sunday, September 26, we're launching 40 days of emotional and mental health. And then we'll get in groups uh, so that the the series is not just informative, but it's transformative. And it's going to be super, super powerful. So I hope you get into one of those. So we are in Hosea uh, 3 and in verse 1, it says, Go love a woman as I have loved the children of Israel. So he says, um, um, just as you, Hosea, are married, so I am married to my people. And this is a pervasive biblical concept, both in the new and old. So it's all through the prophets. So in Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. So He is our husband. Uh, Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one. And then it says this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that this refers to Christ and his church. It's a greater love story than than any husband and wife. It is the relationship between Christ and Christ. And church, and then at the end, Revelation nineteen seven. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. This is a couple things about this beautiful. One, it's a beautiful metaphor. The intimacy that God wants with His people goes beyond a king and his subjects, a master and a servant, a shepherd and a sheep. Even that beyond a father. In child, there's a connection and a closeness in the marriage relationship, um, that that is revealed it, that, that it reveals to us how God feels about us. He wants a relationship so close, so intimate, so binding that we can't possibly understand who God is and how we relate to Him outside of this. Uh, so, one, it's a beautiful metaphor, but secondly, let's be honest, it's a weird metaphor. So, let me just remind you um, that it is a metaphor. Jesus is a real man glorified in a glorified body right now, reigning and ruling at the right hand of God. We should not romanticize our relationship with Jesus in any way, shape or form. Uh, Worship leaders for a season uh, were writing songs that were unhelpful, if not inappropriate, you know, basically saying Jesus is my boyfriend and that's not how we are to relate to him. We're not to romanticize this relationship. So that's one. But secondly, so it's just a metaphor. Secondly, the first and the main application of the bride of Christ is corporate, not individual. I, we're going to apply it individually today, and I think that is, that is right. But it's primarily a corporate uh, metaphor. We are the bride of Christ. Uh, and so you, it's important to see that this is a corporate reality and not just an individual one, which on a side note, but an important side note, This is the Bible telling us that we cannot even actually understand our identity without understanding uh, that we are part of something, that we don't just see our identity through an individual lens. As you grow in your maturity in Christ, you begin to see the world through a biblical lens. Uh, Your first question won't be, who am I? But who am I in light of who God is and his corporate community? So it'll firstly be, what what does God want for us? Not so much what God wants for me, so it's it's corporate, uh, but there's individual application. So, what does it say about this relationship that we have with God? It, it, firstly, it says it talks about the that this is a relationship of priority. The only way to have a healthy marriage is that your spouse is the most important relationship, most important human relationship that you have. Some of us have learned this the hard way. To try to for to not put that at the top place, it's just not going to work. And when that's true, when, when your marriage is going well, I mean, you're, all of what's going on in your world can be going south. But if your marriage is going well, you can move out in the world in strength. Uh, but the opposite is true. If, you're not, if things aren't going well in your marriage, but everything else is going well, you're going to move out in the world and weakness. I mean, that's what Rod Stewart said. He said in his song, have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you that there's no one else above you? He's even say, hey, look, there's a priority to this relationship. And when that happens, he says this, you fill my heart with gladness. You take away all my sadness, ease my troubles. That is what you do. Now, I know some of you are disappointed that he did not sing that song. And I just merely said that, but let me just tell you, I did you a huge favor. But what he's saying and what the Bible's saying is that uh, marriage is, is this human relationship that sets the course for your entire life, but it must be a priority. You know, that's why it says, you know, when you become married with someone, you're no longer two, but one. And Jesus is saying it, that I am the ultimate priority. I cannot be an add-on relationship. I am not a vitamin supplement. I am the priority. I sadly read in a recent poll, I hope this isn't true. All right. But it's, the poll that I read, and it said that only 14% of Christians um, saw being a Christian as more important than being American. 72% said it was of equal importance, and actually 13% said being American was more important than being a Christian. This is among evangelicals. And let me just say, like, there's no marriage that works that way. I mean, like, I, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna be married 21 years and I'll get her, you know, I'll, I'll get her a gift. We'll go out and I'll get her a card. I will not write in the card, baby, I just want you to know that I love you just as much as America. Uh, that's not gonna go well for me and it's not gonna go for, well for any healthy marriage. Everything else becomes second. So it's a relationship of priority. It's also a relationship of intimacy. You know, I can hide stuff from my friends, I can hide stuff. For my parents, I can even hide stuff from myself, but I cannot hide stuff from my spouse. Expressions are intimate. You can't love people from afar. J- Jesus doesn't want to just live next to you, but actually, he wants to live inside of you. You know, he's closer than the brother, he lives with us by his spirit. It's a relationship of ultimate influence. Your spouse can absolutely shape how you feel about yourself in ways that no one else can. So for example, if someone came up to me and said, you know what, Brian, you're a really kind person. I would respond, oh, that's nice. And I fooled you because uh, you don't know me, right? You're like, you don't know how impatient I am. You don't know how you know, task oriented I am. But my wife was to say, Brian, you're about the kindest person I've ever met. If my wife was to say that, if she was to say that, could somebody please tell her to say that to me? If she was to say that, Uh, like, man, like, uh, I can't say I fooled her. Like, it would be true. And she has the power to make me float and she has the power to to absolutely crush me. And, And this is, it's a relationship of great influence. Let me tell you something how God feels about you. Isaiah 62, five. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I remember being the bridegroom. I remember seeing Rachel when you know when she comes around the corner with her. Dad, I remember that moment when I saw her. I, I've I've officiate weddings and I've seen counts, countless, countless bridegrooms uh, standing at the front with me. And I'm I'm always watching there for everyone else's eyes on the bride, but I love watching uh, the groom. And every, I mean, there's tears, there's a smile as big as you can see. What no bridegroom ever does is like, you know, look, starts looking at his watch, like, you know, how long is she gonna take? Like there is just, it is pure enthusiasm and joy and excitement and delight. And that is exactly what God thinks about you when he thinks about you. When he sees you, he lights up like a bridegroom standing at the altar, waiting for the bride to come down. The best marriages in all of history are just a dim hint. They're just a dim picture of the reality of the love and the joy and the delight that God has for us and the ability for, us for that to change our life. So if God loves us that way, that should change us more than anything. And that's why it says in the Bible that in, a, in Ephesians 3, that when we experience this love, man, we could do more than we could ever think or imagine because it's love is that transformative and that influential. So um, this says in Hosea that this relationship is like a marriage, but from God's perspective, it's also saying it's like a bad marriage because look at what Hosea is asked to do. He says in verse one, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. So in Hosea chapter one, God points out a particular woman, her, uh, her name is Gomer, and God says, she's the one for you. She's the one that you are to marry. And he says in verse two of chapter one, to take an adulterous wife because my people... Are an adulterous people. Hosea was a prophet and he was to marry Gomer as a prophetic revelation of this, of the, the relationship that God had to his people, that Hosea was playing the God part and, and Gomer was playing our part, his people. And God tells Hosea uh, that this woman, Gomer, is going to be unfaithful to you, but I want you to be faithful to her. She is going to be unfaithful to you, but I want you to be. Uh, faithful to her. She's going to betray you and she's going to trample on your heart because my people are guilty of unfaithfulness and yet I will show them my love. Now, why did God do this? Well, God was wanting to demonstrate that he loves us with an unconditional love and that we consistently are unfaithful to him. And if we don't understand this picture of marriage, we're really never gonna understand who God is and how he loves us. So so Hosea does what God asks and he marries her. And then they have three children, two boys and a girl. But the unfaithfulness starts very, very early because you wanna know what they named the third child? He named the third child Loami, which means not mine. She was immediately unfaithful to Hosea. And then she had more lovers and more lovers. And then in chapter two, she becomes a streetwalker. She becomes a prostitute. But it gets worse in chapter three because we see that she's for sale. This lover referred to in verse one is probably her pimp, and she most likely lost her marketability. And now he's cutting her, his losses and trying to sell her off. It's as bad as it could be. It's as broken as it can be. It's as miserable as it can be, and God is demonstrating that this broken marriage is what my relationship is like with my people. I love my people, but my people have not been faithful to me. So he says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is as an adulteress, even as the Lord loved the children of Israel, though they turned to other gods and loved the cakes of raisins. The cakes of raisins was a delicacy ate, eaten at the uh, idol feast. In other words, God is saying, this is what it feels like when a human being puts something else before me, when when they put other gods before me, when they begin to make something else more important to me. And you and I do not understand the impact of our sin until you understand what the betrayal in marriage feels like. You know, if a king has a citizen who breaks a rule, that's one thing, but when a spouse puts her arm, so excuse me, when a, when a spouse puts herself in the arms of another lover, that is not breaking a rule. That is breaking a heart. So we don't really understand God unless we understand, but we don't actually understand ourselves. Gomer is actually out of, so so we don't understand how God feels about this, but we actually don't understand like what we give ourselves to. I mean, Gomer is absolutely out of control. She cannot stop her lust. She is a sex addict. In fact, if you read Jeremiah 2, 3, and 4, it's very graphic of how God describes the unfaithfulness of Jeremiah, I won't go into it because it is just that graphic, but it talks about this lust that is out of control for other lovers. So has Israel lusted after foreign gods. And and this is what we do when we put anything before God, when we put idols before God, it could be making money, it could be having children, it could be looks, achievements, politics, rights, freedoms. I mean, Christians right now are out of control and how they perceive their personal freedoms as it relates to what does it mean to be a a people of God. But whatever it is, whatever you would put as more important than God, like we saw in this poll, I mean, that is your real God. And and you know what sex addicts are like? Sex addicts have an inner emptiness that compels them to fill it with false intimacy. Sexual practice, Practices to satisfy, and it's a false intimacy. God says, if you make anything more important to Him, you are doing the same thing with your soul that a sex addict does with their body. You're putting yourselves in the arms of something else. You gotta have it. You gotta have that money. You gotta have the relationship. You gotta have that that job, that career. It is your lover. But how do these lovers treat us? How do these idols? Treat us, Jeremiah 430. Oh, you, oh, desolate one. What does it mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain, you beautify yourself. Check this out. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. What is he saying? He's saying these these things can't save you. They are just idols. They didn't create you. I did. They can't save you, but I can. If you build your life around anything except the God of the Bible, they will leave you desolate and they will seek your life because they demand an allegiance from you without delivering on what they promised. So we don't understand God, but we don't even understand ourselves because we, we don't realize how addicted we are to these other gods. So how does God respond to us? Well, he says... To Hosea, to go to her again. You have a thousand reasons to divorce her, but don't do that. Go to her and look at verse 2. It says that he bought her. Now, this was most likely a public auction, and the humiliation would have been extreme because she probably is standing there naked. And as she closes her eyes to shield herself from, as much humiliation as she possibly can in the moment, a crowd of men start bidding five shekels, eight shekels, 10 shekels. And in her humiliation, she thought it couldn't get any worse, but then she begins to hear the voice of Hosea. And she thinks like, what is he doing here? 12 shekels, 13 shekels, 14 shekels, 15 shekels, 15 shekels and a homer of barley. She is sold. And as Hosea approaches Gomer uh, to cover her up and lead her away, she has to be run, wondering what is he going to do? to do with me. As bad as we think this situation is, I don't think we can actually understand the humiliation of what this shame and honor culture was like in the Middle East, in the eighth century BC. The only possible way that this guy wins is revenge. I mean, we have record of men in this culture, we have men uh, legally divorcing wives to what it amounts to basically like burning the toast and to throw them out in the streets legally, which would have been like a virtual death sentence. And here we have this woman who has cheated on him multiple times, all within the community. See, everyone, no one like, you know, like, you know, you may be in the city and it's just you and your family somewhere else and you could be private. But, you know, he would have had all of his family, every, extended family, everyone he would have ever known and grown up with would have all known what was going on. And so she didn't just, do something. She didn't just cheat on him once or twice. She becomes a prostitute. So what is he gonna do now that he's finally caught up with her? What do you think God wants to do with you when he finally catches up with you in your sin? Pay you back? Revenge? Make you a slave? According to Hosea 3, he does a couple of things. First, he says, I wanna dwell with you. I don't want revenge. I don't want you as my slave. I wanna make a life with you again. But he also says, I will be yours. Not just you will be mine. You know, I'm the husband. You know, you will be mine. You're my property, whatever. He is saying, once again, it's not just that you're gonna give yourself to me, but I want to give myself to you completely. I am yours. What does God do for his bride, the church? Well, what does Hosea do? Well, Hosea paid the redemption price to get her out of slavery. He bore her humiliation. This action that he did would not have been applauded. It would have been looked down upon. And he restored her to right relationship, completely gave himself to her, despite her behavior and treatment of him. And Gomer finally found rest in the arms of Hosea. This, my brothers and sisters, is a picture of God in us. Hosea was in love, God is in love. Hosea was betrayed, God has been betrayed. Hosea pays an enormous price to get her back. God has paid an enormous price to get his bride back. And he promised to never leave us or forsake us. And then, so how does this relate to how we relate to others? Well, he then turns to us like he turns to the disciples in John 13. Just as I have loved you, I want you to love each other. Just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, even though you have betrayed me, even though that you have hurt me, even though that you have not been fair to me at all, I have paid the price to love you. To love anyone with a problem involves substitutionary sacrifice. All of us have problems. I mean if you know someone who's like easy to love, I mean like grab a hold of them and don't let go because it's just not it's just not 99.9% of people. If you love someone who has a problem. So say you have a friend who's going through a difficult time and she's very emotional about it all. And you have this relaxing evening at home planned with your family or some friends or just by yourself. You know that if you go to that friend, it's gonna take from you. And this particular friend tends to overreact anyway, but you know she needs someone to talk to. In that moment, it's either her or you. There's no way around it. You can either have the evening that you wanted and stay emotionally untapped. um, Or you can go to her because at the end of the evening, she's gonna feel better, but you won't. And that's the way it works. There's no way to love a weak person without your strength going to them and without their weakness coming to you. There is a substitutionary transaction that goes on every time that you love someone. And we're we're, we're talking to each other about how do we how do, we build, how do we build this kind of New Testament community where we learn to bear with each other and we have all different kinds of opinions and all different kinds of diversity and da, 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 da. How does this all work together? Well, we learn to love each other in a substitutionary way. We learn to love each other the way Christ has loved us with an unconditional love where, we, where we're willing to pay the price. We're willing to, to pay the emotional price or the actual price, whatever that may be. So let me ask you a question. (laughs) Are you right now suffering? Are you right now in a meltdown? Maybe God is making you a prophet. Let me just say that right there. Maybe, Maybe God wants to use whatever situation that you're going on to be a prophetic revelation of what the love of God is really like. Don't miss this opportunity. So many people are viewing Um, their world and how they move out in their neighborhoods and how they move out into community based through the eyes of themselves and how they're being treated. And it's not fair. And I'm not saying it is, but here's what the invitation is to us, that we can love the way Christ has loved us. I read this great quote by Bob Goff. He says, don't save up love like you're trying to retire on it. Give it away like you're made of it. Isn't that amazing? Because that is what Christ Christ says, I am loving you with an internal source of love that is me. I am love. And I want to fill your life with that love. Now take that love and go and love other people. Maybe God is making you a prophet. Maybe God's making you a prophet in your community group, in your neighborhood, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace. You are not being treated fairly, but you are going to willing, you are willing to pay. The price. He has so much for us. Finally, I just want to say, if you, do you have Jesus in your life? Maybe you've never said to him, like, I do. Like, I want this relationship. I want to be in this relationship. I want to receive your love. I want to, I want to fall into his arms. I just want to encourage you to make that vow today, to say to him, yes, I, I want this. I, I want to be in a relationship with you. And, and maybe if you are in a relationship with him, today is a great opportunity just to renew that vow. and Say, God, I, I, want, I want to return to you. I put other things in front of you. I put money in front of you. I put uh, other relationships in front of you. I've put my career in front of you. I put my own sense of desire to be right and freedoms and all that in front of you. And I don't wanna do that anymore. I don't wanna chase after foreign gods. I want you. There's nothing more important to me than you. You you have loved me with an everlasting love. And I want to renew that with you. Can I just pray for you as we close here today? Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this picture of Mary. We thank you, Lord, for all the metaphors of a body, of a a building, of a flock. Lord, these are all good and true, but God, that you, that we are the bride of Christ corporately together, the bride of Christ, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you want intimacy, that you want closeness, that you want priority. Lord, and we have betrayed you. Lord, we have gone our own way. Lord, we have sought after and lusted after other gods, but you have not stopped loving us. You don't love us. You don't love us because we've been good. You have loved us despite the fact that we haven't been good, that we have been unfaithful. But God, you have come to us. And Lord, you wanna make a life with us. You wanna dwell with us and and you wanna give yourself completely to us, promising to never leave us or forsake us. I just pray that that love would transform our hearts and that we would in turn, as a community in our different cities, love one another and love the world that you've called us to do, that we would be truly those that are not trying to gather love up to retire on it, but to give it away like we're made of it.